Hello, everyone, and welcome to McGill Care's webcast series, Supporting Family and Informal Caregivers. I'm Claire Webster, a former caregiver, certified dementia care consultant, and founder of McGill University's Dementia Education Program. I work with a dynamic team of leading healthcare professionals to oversee the program, who include Dr. José Moret from the Division of Geriatric Medicine, and Dr. Serge Gauthier, Professor Emeritus, formerly the director of the McGill University Research Center for Studies in Aging. These webcasts are made possible thanks to the generosity of donors. And my husband, Stuart, and I are very pleased to support today's webcast. February is Heart Month. And as many of you may know, cardiovascular health is an issue that touches me personally. I have lived with cardiac health issues throughout most of my life, having a condition called sick sinus syndrome, as well as atrial fibrillation, which is the illness we will be discussing today. I have also been living with a pacemaker since the age of 19, and nonetheless have been able to lead a very active and fulfilling life. I am a long-term patient of the Montreal General Hospital, and I'm extremely grateful for the attention and care that I receive from the Cardiac Electrophysiology Department. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jacqueline Joseph, cardiac electrophysiologist and assistant professor of medicine at the McGill University Health Center. Dr. Joza cares for patients with both general and inherited arrhythmias and has a special interest in ablation of atrial and ventricular arrhythmias, leadless pacemaker implantation, and novel techniques in defibrillator implantation. Her current research focuses on physiologic pacing, familial sick sinus syndrome, and atrial fibrillation. Welcome to McGill Cares. Thank you very much, Claire. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here with you. So I'd like to begin, first of all, about talking about the risk of heart disease in women. Um, many people may not be aware, but cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death among women. And really, I'd like maybe you could give us an explanation of why is this? You know, what are you seeing among your patients? You know, are women putting too much pressure on themselves and not maybe caring enough? for them, you know, while trying to manage their families, balancing careers. Maybe you can talk a bit about that. Oh, um, 100%. You're, you're 100% right, Claire. I think people, women in general, tend to um, not think about themselves as much as, as their families and, and others around them, and they're frequently caregivers to um, their parents. Um, <clears throat> and so we end up um, not uh, taking care of ourselves in the way that we should. So we really should be exercising, you know, three, four times a week. We really should be um, doing self-care, meditation, yoga, those kinds of things. Um, and of course, uh, you know, seeing your doctor regularly and frequently, we, you know, as women, we, we tend to miss appointments or we don't, you know, kind of put them off as if they might not be as important um, as we think. And one thing, you know, one of the reasons why, um, you know, heart disease is, is prevalent in, in, in women is, is also because of stress and, and um, this high level of functioning that we tend to have. Um, and the silent ki killer for women really is blood pressure, you know, high blood pressure. So uh, what happens when you have high blood pressure is that the, the heart tends to thicken over time. And then we develop symptoms of, of, of shortness of breath and heart failure and arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation. It's very common um, as women grow older. And so I think that it's just so important to be aware of these issues. 
So in my case, you know, I developed AFib when I was in my mid-teens, um, and I'm sure right. in your in your in your um, you know at the hospital and your clinic, you're seeing women what in their 30s, 40s developing this condition as well. We it's it's unusual, I would say, to see atrial fibrillation um, in the 30s and 40s. Definitely, as we move forward with time, as, with, as we age, we see it a lot more commonly. However, we do see other types of arrhythmias in, in younger women, um, other types of um, heart irregular heartbeats. So before you get into your presentation, um, which I'm very much looking forward to, can you explain the difference between arrhythmia, atrial fibrillation, heart murmur, and palpitations? Because they all sound the same. <laughs> right. That's an excellent question. I get asked that a lot, um, actually. So a heart, I'll start with the heart murmur. A heart murmur has nothing to do with the electrical system of the heart. Okay. It has nothing to do with palpitations or, well, not nothing, but it, it doesn't really have too much to do with it when we look at the basis or the pathophysiology or the basis of this. So a murmur is when um, there is an obstruction or a leakiness of a valve in the heart, okay? So the blood going forward, is it's harder to get the blood forward through the valve or the blood leaks backwards. And then that will create a murmur that we can hear when we put the stethoscope on the chest. So a murmur is really... Uh, a type of um, a type of sound that we hear when we put the stethoscope on the chest, and and it's because of the blood flow forward or backwards is obstructed or too leaky. So that's what a murmur is. When we talk about palpitations, it's what we feel inside the heart. It's a symptom that we can have. So the fluttering, or we can call it irregularity inside the heart, or an extra beat here and there. Those are palpitations, and they can feel different for for different people. Okay. And those palpitations may actually, when we talk about a medical problem, those are what we call arrhythmias. So it's an abnormal heart rhythm. And that is what is causing you to feel those palpitations or those fluttering um, or, or irregularity in the heart. So Dr. Joza, I understand that you now have this a great presentation to help people understand the impact of uh, AFib. So I'll let you take it away. Okay, great. Um, so, you know, my first slide here is really to discuss, you know, and, and to visualize um, the heart and the underlying electrical system within the heart. Okay. So when we look, and so here on the, um, here on the left of your screen, um, this is uh, the heart. We have four chambers in the heart. The two top are called the atria the right atrium and the left atrium and the bottom is called the right ventricle and the left ventricle. And, you know, when we hear that lub dub sound, lub dub, lub dub, that's really the two chop, the chop chamber contracting and pushing the blood forward into the bottom ventricles, the bottom chambers, um, which then um, push the blood forward um, either to the lungs or to the rest of the body. And so the way that this works so efficiently is because there's an underlying electrical system in the heart, we can think of like wiring, okay? But really it's cell to cell connections. And so really the brain of the, of the heart uh, or the electrical system of the heart starts with the SA node or sinoatrial node here in the top right um, upper hand um, chamber. And the electrical system will pass through the atria down to the middle part called the AV node. And then the electrical system will continue on um, 
And so this allows the heart to, to really be a beat in an efficient manner. So when it when the electricity passes here, these two top chambers will contract, push the blood forward. And when the electricity passes down here, these two chambers will, 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 will uh, contract. So there's a very synchronous activation and efficient blood flow through the heart. Now, that's normal rhythm. When you develop atrial fibrillation, what happens is you get chaotic, irregular signals coming from the top chambers of the heart. And all these little electrical signals will bombard the AV node, this middle part here. And the bottom will therefore conduct very erratically and irregularly. Okay. So you no longer have the normal contraction. Now you're having an irregularity at the top and then the bottom is trying to keep up and it's not sure if it should go fast or slow, but it's definitely irregular. Okay. And so that's atrial fibrillation. And so you can imagine that somebody who's in atrial fibrillation, you know, is not going to feel so great. They're not getting the enough blood forward. Okay. So why do I have atrial fibrillation? And I know it's a very busy slide, but really just focus on these three um, uh, boxes. So we all have non-modifiable factors that we can't, you know, that God gave us or whoever gave us and we, we can't control. And one of them is older age. As we age, you know, we're going to have a higher likelihood of developing atrial fibrillation. There's always a history of family, a family history or genetic basis for these. Um, so you might see these earlier in life if you do have this. Um, male sex is, hot, you know, is typically associated with atrial fibrillation. But actually, as we age, female sex is shown to be um, even more predominant, actually. And some congenital heart defects, things that we're born with that are anatomically different inside the heart. Most people do not have this. Other conditions, high blood pressure, heart failure, if you've had a previous heart attack, if you have um, blocked arteries, um, if you have something called obstructive sleep apnea, and diabetes mellitus. And I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit about a few of these uh, going forward. And, um, and then, of course, there's lifestyle or modifiable factors. So some things that we can do to actually prevent the onset of atrial fibrillation or even control it if we do get it. So obesity is a huge factor. And in fact, um, weight loss will reduce the risk of new atrial fibrillation and recurrence of atrial fibrillation if we're treated already for it. And so um, you can see here, I just wrote a few things, but you know, if you have a 10% weight loss, there's a six-fold greater probability of not having atrial fibrillation. So we're very, very, um, we, we stress uh, weight loss um, as one of the treatments for atrial fibrillation. Alcohol consumption um, is ex exceedingly important. And we think that, oh, you know, it's just a drink. Oh, red wine is very important for us and so forth, which actually has not been proven to be true. Um, but alcohol is definitely a trigger for a lot of people for developing atrial fibrillation. And in fact, there was a recent study in, um, in Australia and they took patient men in general, but it still applies, I would say, to women. Um, and uh, these were regular beer drinkers, and they separated them into uh, drinking their regular amount of beer or abstinence. Okay, and they did blood levels to make sure that they didn't uh, that, that that they were really abstinent from alcohol. And it turns out that there was a significantly higher risk of atrial fibrillation. Um, and uh, and 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 so it, it's just so clear that this is one of the biggest risk factors for atrial fibrillation. Um, there is. Um, uh, any risk, any other risk factors for cardiovascular disease are modifiable technically. Um, smoking, stress, stimulants are, are definitely modifiable risk factors uh, and activity level. And we'll go through kind of activity level um, in the next slides.
Can you can you just describe what are stimulants? Stimulant. Okay, right. So, um, so of course, there's drug type of stimulants, um, but then there's also caffeine. Uh, this kind of um, stimulant. There's also these over-the-counter um, ephedrine or, or things that we take for allergy, allergy pills. Those can sometimes cause atrial fibrillation as well. And what we do see in the younger population is Red Bull um, is a very mm -hmm. classic type of stimulant that causes atrial fibrillation that, that can cause in, in the right setting. So atrial fibrillation is important because there's a five times higher risk of stroke if you do have atrial fibrillation. There's a two to three uh, times increased risk of heart failure throughout your life. And the lifetime risk of developing atrial fibrillation in those age over 55 with just one of these modifiable risk factors that we talked about is one in three. So it's even, even higher than the general population. So with optimal control of these factors, so if we can lose the weight, if we can get rid of the alcohol, then there's even a reduction in developing atrial fibrillation to now one in five. And um, so even the presence of one or three of these of three of these modifiable risk factors, obesity, smoking, and alcohol. So those are kind of easily targetable things that we can do ourselves account for a three times increased risk of developing atrial fibrillation. It's a busy slide again, but this is very important for the way that we treat atrial fibrillation. Initially, we can have atrial fibrillation that comes and goes. And that's called paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. So it can come maybe here for a few minutes, for a few hours, maybe for a day, and then it goes away on its own. Then there's um, the next step of atrial fibrillation is called persistent atrial fibrillation. And so it's there most of the time, and we need therapy to be able to stop the atrial fibrillation and prevent it from coming back. And sometimes we give certain antiarrhythmic medications, medications that we try and keep you in normal rhythm to treat persistent atrial fibrillation. And then you get to the end, which is chronic atrial fibrillation, where we have no desire or there's, it's, it will be impossible to bring you back into normal rhythm. And, that's, um, and so there's this idea of progression, which is just so important. And so if we can stop atrial fibrillation in its tracks, either with medication, and here this slide says catheter ablation, we can actually prevent the progression of atrial fibrillation. So it's important to seek attention and get treatment. And when we talk about treatment, there's really two treatment goals. The first one, as we mentioned, is stroke prevention. And the second is symptom control. And so the symptom control will, be, will kind of dictate whether we decide to pursue a normal rhythm or we leave atrial fibrillation as is because it's not causing any symptoms. And so that will help us determine which way we go, either we try and keep you in the rhythm, uh, control normal rhythm, or just keep you in atrial fibrillation, but just make sure the heart rate's not too fast. And sometimes when we're looking at rate control, that might mean a pacemaker. And so I just wanna talk about the treatment from conservative management to ablation therapy. And uh, so we're, these, these are just, it's just so important to, um, target the cardiovascular risk factors, okay? And so when we look at targets, when we're talking about exercise, we're looking at 30 minutes, three times, three to four times per week. And so that's initially, and then we like to see the activity level increase to about 200 minutes per week, moderate intensity, you know, even just a brisk walk, I think is very good. Um, weight target, if you're overweight, we should see a more than 10% weight loss. Um, so get rid of those processed foods. Uh, that's the killer, really. 
and, and, and try to attain what we call a body mass index of under 27 kilograms per meter squared. For if you have diabetes, we like to see, you know, a uh, change of diet and we decide to start medications if we have a high glucose level that we've seen for more than three months. When we talk about cholesterol, I put the kind of the, the numbers here, but, you know, we should be routinely following uh, cholesterol levels because cholesterol has definitely a risk to play for the development of atrial fibrillation and other um, heart, heart diseases. And so I, I mentioned kind of when we would start a medication we call a statin or Lipitor or Crestor. And so if patients are at intermediate risk, then we, we will go ahead and start, start a medication. Alcohol target. So we like a reduction to under 30 grams a week or complete abstinence. Smoking, just, just cut it out. You know, I know it's difficult, but it's just so important to cut it out. Blood pressure. Blood pressure is really the silent killer of, of women and, and men, but women in particular. And, you know, I mentioned the risk of heart failure and I, I mentioned also, you know, risk of stroke and atrial fibrillation. And so it's just so important to watch your blood pressure um, where, you know, women's are higher, you know, may, you know, are, are more stressed. We have more things going on. And so, so sometimes we don't pay attention just so if you don't have a blood pressure machine uh, at home, go into the pharmacy and just measure it. Um, and, and, and document it. And then obstructive sleep apnea. Obstructive sleep apnea um, is a disease that uh, causes you to stop breathing many, many, many times during the night. And we don't notice it. But uh, what happens when you stop breathing is that the oxygen level goes down and it puts a lot of pressure on the heart, on the lungs. And it can cause it and can really increase your risk of developing atrial fibrillation and make you feel really tired the next day. So I think you have atrial, it's uh, obstructive sleep apnea. It's important to mention this to your doctor. And just a quick slide about blood thinners for atrial fibrillation. And so this is really talking about stroke prevention. We tend to start a blood thinner if patients, and these are the Canadian guidelines, uh, which were recently published last year. And have been essentially the same type of guidelines for many years. Um, so if you're of 65 and older, if you have any of these risk factors of prior stroke or a transient ischemic attack, so that's where you had a mini stroke, hypertension, heart failure, or diabetes, then we all start an oral anticoagulant, so a blood thinner. And if you have only coronary disease or a vascular disease, we tend to just give you aspirin. However, there's more and more data that's showing that potentially we should be starting these blood thinners sooner in patients with atrial fibrillation. And one of the reasons is to prevent uh, the onset of dementia. And so this is still a huge area of research. Um, so we're still not sure, but I typically will advocate for uh, more of use of blood thinner just because there is clearly a, a risk of dementia in patients with atrial fibrillation. And we like to prevent that onset, that progression. So, so I tend to start these a little bit earlier in patients. Can I, can I just have you expand on that? Because you made an important sure. point. Because a lot of people ask, you know, what is, what is, how can I prevent like dementia, right? And mm -hmm. there is such a correlation between our cardiovascular health and right. dementia, right? And yeah. dementia really results oftentimes from a lack of oxygen to the brain. And how does that happen? It's because we suffer a stroke or a heart attack, right? So what you just said is really important. I mean, I mean, mm. a, a real guiding factor in terms of 
doing our best to prevent dementia is, is staying as cardiovascularly as healthy as possible. Yeah. Oh, 100%. We don't think about it. But uh, yeah, let me I'll pull up a slide that's actually kind of going through that. So there's this idea of cognitive decline and dementia in patients with not just atrial fibrillation. This is more specific, but honestly, it really applies to all sorts of um, reasons of, of, of why we develop dementia. And, and so one is a direct mechanism. Okay. So you can develop stroke. That's clearly a direct mechanism for developing uh, uh, difficulties, uh, you know, and, 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 and uh, dementia. So when we talk we, when we talk about stroke, it means embolus. Okay, so we're, we have a little uh, blood clot that sits in the heart, and it goes and it it takes off and it it lands in the brain, and that will cause a stroke. But we can also have these silent cerebral infarcts, which is even more kind of um, frightening, um, because we have many. They're, they're, we don't even know that they're occurring. Okay, and so we have small little thrombi that develop because perhaps we're, we have atrial fibrillation. We're not taking a blood thinner, and those little um, thrombi can go and, and create uh, these mini strokes of which we don't really identify because they're just so small. But but if we continue to have them, we can develop. This is clearly a nidus or, or you know originating um, for uh, for for dementia. So um, any heart failure or hypoperfusion. So we're, we're you know the heart's a little bit weak. It's not contracting properly, and so we're not getting the right amount of blood flow up to our brains. And so this is a risk factor as well. And if we have these ideas of a, pro-inflammatory or thrombotic states, which are not necessarily, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily go into because they're a little bit more uh, unusual causes. But then of course, the vascular risk factor. So as we age, clearly there's a risk of dementia, high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, cholesterol, obesity. These are all clear risk factors for developing dementia and these other uh, neurological diseases or amyloid plaques. Um, this is also a risk. And what these all cause eventually over time is this great idea of gray matter lesions and volume, uh, brain volume loss. Um, and I'm sure that some of my neurological or geriatric colleagues could speak a little bit more to that. But um, this is what we know um, coming from a cardiovascular aspect. So um, I just want to finalize kind of the treatment of atrial fibrillation. You know, we talked about modifiable risk factors and we talked about stroke prevention. And now we're going to talk a little bit about what, what is, what is an ablation? Because many people ask me that and they hear, oh, you know, their friend had an ablation for this or that. But for atrial fibrillation, what that means is that we put wires up inside the vein, inside the groin, and we pass them inside the heart. So here's the right atrium again. We pass them over to the left side of the heart Okay, where the atrial fibrillation typically originates. And there we isolate these lung veins because we know that the electrical, uh, electrical signals of atrial fibrillation are really originating in, in, inside these areas, inside these lung veins. So we isolate them either through burning, radio frequency, or through what we call freezing, which is cryoablation. And so early on, patients might be more candidates for cryoablation, but as atrial fibrillation progresses, we then typically um, go ahead with uh, a radio frequency type of, um, and there's other new technologies that are coming out. So it's a fascinating um, field actually. And my last slide is really just going to hammer home why it's so important to take care of our modifiable risk factors. Um, so when we go inside the heart, and this is the left atrium, so I'm showing the left atrium and this is the back wall, and I'm showing the lung veins as they enter inside that left atrium. 
And so this is where the atrial fibrillation originates. And so we're actually, with our with the current technology, we go in and we can touch the tissue and we can know how healthy it is and we can recreate this anatomy of the heart. And so we know how sick that heart is just by touching these areas, just by touching the tissue with our catheters. And so early on in atrial fibrillation, when it first begins, we can see that this is all purple here, meaning that it's all healthy, normal tissue, okay? As we develop more atrial fibrillation or there's more risk factors, we develop more scar within the heart. And we can see that by touching the heart and we can see these other areas, these yellow and, and red type of areas. So we're developing more scar within the heart. So you can imagine these areas of scar are gonna contribute all the more to atrial fibrillation. And as we further develop more risk factors or have longer standing atrial fibrillation that's untreated, we can develop even higher amounts of scar and even to the point that there's extensive scar. And you can imagine that if we treat somebody early or they're, or they're helping themselves out and they treat you know, their modifiable risk factors, then we can actually improve um, the outcomes of, of treatment, of, of atrial fibrillation treatment. And so it's just important to speak with your doctor and kind of find if, if you do have atrial fibrillation or, you know, this is why I, I just wanted to bring this up because it's just so why it's so important um, for, for us to take care of ourselves. Thank you so much for this. It's so informative. I mean, I have to, you know, I mean, um, you know, with full transparency, you know, Dr. Jose, you recently became my doctor. And after years of living with AFib, I realized that, you know, it was kind of like in remission or, you know, not so significant, but then, you know, despite being very physically active and, you know, I don't consider myself obese by any means. Um, <laughs> however, my AFib had come back significantly, um, you know, last October and you suggested that I start anticoagulants. And, you know, my first reaction was I'm only you know, 53 years old, why should I start blood thinners? But it's, it makes so much sense, right. To be much, to be very proactive and, right. you know, especially with my history of heart issues in my family and my mother having had dementia, I want to do everything possible to, um, to be proactive with regards to myself. Um, so I, that was very educational for me. Um, so just one of my last questions for people watching, can you just talk about some of the very important, significant signs and symptoms that people should not ignore? You know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, for instance, women, we're very busy in our life. We don't have time, but let's say signs and symptoms of a potential heart attack or signs and symptoms that they need to, like, they, they really need to get themselves to the ER. Sure. Um, usually it's a feeling that something's not right. We're typically intuitive about our bodies. And so just something's not right. We're feeling, you know, the classic story is I have a pressure and it feels like an elephant is sitting on my chest. That's a very classic sign of having a, a, um, a heart attack, but it can be also just significant nausea and vomiting. And, and you don't know why, where did that come from? And that's typically associated with a big sweat or significant fatigue, just a very, or fatigue or a big weakness that we feel. And that those are classic signs. Um, the other classic sign is, is having a chest pain that radiates to the jaw or to the left arm, but not all people are gonna feel that. And typically women present a little bit atypically. Um, so not, not in the standard way. Um, and so those, uh, I also wanna talk, that, so that's for a heart attack, but, but, but also important is a stroke. Okay. I had a recent patient who came in just, just two days ago, who was telling me about the way that she presented with her stroke and she was sitting in bed with her husband 
and uh, in the evening. And then he was talking to her and she was trying to talk back to him, but nothing came out. She couldn't talk. She couldn't say anything. And so after 20 minutes, it resolved and they didn't really know what had happened and they left it. They went to sleep. And then the next morning they thought, oh, that was funny. Maybe I should go to the emergency room. And they did. And it was clearly a stroke. So we can't ignore those symptoms where, you know, you're unable to talk. You're, you know, there's obviously a, sometimes there's a paralysis of one side. So, so the one side is not moving. So it's drooping. And sometimes when we have a mask on, we don't even see those symptoms. So, you know, it's important that if you see that somebody's having a stroke, take the mask off and, and look, right. Look to see if they're having, um, drooling or, or one side is, is dropping um, or one eye is kind of not moving or we're not able to um, say anything or, or express ourselves. And that, that might be a stroke. And so time is really of the essence in that, in that circumstance. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I, I'm assuming hospitals will, will react quickly. I mean, many people oh, were right. watching today from Quebec saying, you know, our healthcare system so overwhelmed with COVID, but I think with, when it comes to, you know, any type of signs or symptoms of stroke or heart attack, the hospital will react quickly. Oh, right. Oh yeah. We're always prepared for those. Those are the the main, um, some, you know, main reasons why we will just go ahead and, and treat obviously. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today on McGill Cares. I mean, it was incredibly informative. So thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to be here with you. This webcast is an initiative of the McGill Dementia Education Program, which is funded by private donations. If you would like to make a contribution to our program or for more information, please visit us at mcgill.ca slash dementia. And if you would like to join our mailing list so that you're informed about upcoming programs, webcasts, and all the resources that we have to offer, please email us at dementia at mcgill.ca. Thank you for watching.